Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. A show where we talk about people, places, and misfortunate events. Today, Nathan and I are bringing you another hometown story. This is about the Coconut Grove Fire of 1942. I don't usually put trigger warnings trigger warnings or advisories at the beginning of episodes because it's called Fatal Fortunes. If you did not want to listen to something about fortuitously yeah. fatal fortune, yeah. <laughs> um, gonna I don't know why you came. Yeah. So if if you're if you're having a bad day, don't don't listen to Fatal Fortunes on Tuesday when it comes out. If you're having a bad Tuesday, wait till Wednesday. A lot of people are going to die in this episode. And if listening to people burn to death in a fiery nightclub isn't your thing, feel free to skip this episode and listen to another, you know, much happier one, uh, if if there is such a thing. Yeah, we've uh, got so many happy episodes of uh, people dying. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know how I like to start an episode, and it's by setting the scene, setting the stage. And this fire took place, like I said, in 1942. And... Whenever we do a, you know, mid-40s episode, it's always battle, 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 war, 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 war. And I try and be less that because if I just listed a bunch of battles, that wouldn't be entirely fun. I'm not sure if we've done the year 1942, but of course, there's stuff going on. And I'm going to reiterate it for you. The declaration by the United Nations is signed by China, the United Kingdom, United States, Soviet Union, and 22 other nations in which they agree to not make a separate peace with the Axis powers. The Dutch East Indies campaign is going on. Japan declares war on the Netherlands and the Dutch East Indies, and they begin to invade Borneo and the, oh God, Kellebees? American film actress Carol Lombard and her mother are among the 22 people killed on TWA Flight 3 when the Douglas DC-3 plane they are flying in crashes into the Potosi Mountain near Las Vegas as she's returning from a tour to promote the sale of war bonds. I feel like this is like the another nail in the coffin for TWA. It's It's got to be not long <laughs> for them. That's yeah. not good. As you can see, this is a young episode because it's only the 14th Academy Awards, and they're wow. being held, of course, in Los Angeles. How Green Was My Valley won best picture all right princess elizabeth registered for service in the uk i wrote this y'all on august 5th when the queen was still here damn big episode big big queen episode coming for those for those watching ddt is first used as a pesticide oh no yeah (laughs) the times square ball in times square is not dropped for the first time. Instead, there's a moment of silence at midnight followed by the sound of bells playing from sound trucks at the base of one Times Square. Why did they do that? The year was so somber. Oh my God. Fuck dropping the ball. The births going on this year are Muhammad Ali, Christine Keeler of Perfumo Affair fame, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, John Wayne Gacy, Aretha Franklin... Paul McCartney. Oh. And Jose Eduardo Dos Santos, figure from different Fatal Fortunes episode on Syndica. 
mm. patron of the arts, if you want to check that out. Um, I think he died recently. Well, the deaths we have this year are Ellen Montgomery, Louis Borno, the 28th president of Haiti. Well, a bunch of people don't make it that year, obviously. But of course, none of those people are who we came to talk about today. We came to talk about the Coconut Grove Fire of 1942, the second largest nightclub fire ever after the Iroquois Fire at the a theater in Chicago. So not a good day for Boston, not a good day for Beantown, and you will soon see why. This episode is going to be a mouthful. So let's talk about the club's background. The club was first opened during Prohibition in 1927 at 17 Piedmont Street in the Bay Village neighborhood of Boston. Fun fact, Bay Village is the smallest officially recognized neighborhood in Boston. So it first operated as a speakeasy because, you know, of course, Prohibition, no booze. And the two original owners were Mickey Alpert and Jacques Renard, and they had mafia connections. How else you get the booze? How else we get the booze? And it became known as a gangland hotspot. But by the time of the fire, neither Alpert nor Renard were owners, but Alpert was actually leading the house band on the night of the fire. Another owner of the club was Charles, a.k.a. King Solomon, a.k.a. also Boston Charlie. He owned the club from 1931 until his death when he was shot and killed at his other bar, the Cotton Club in Roxbury, my neighborhood, the neighborhood I'm from, <laughs> in 1933. When he was killed, ownership of the club passed to his lawyer, Barney Wolanski, who was connected to the mob, and Boston Mayor Maurice J. Tobin. So the building was originally a garage slash warehouse combo type thing made of brick and concrete that was then converted into dining rooms, bars, and lounges. A new lounge called the Broadway Lounge was opened in the building next door the week before the fire happened. The interior was tropical themed and the roof could be pulled back so patrons could dance under the stars in the summertime. Wow. Yeah, that sounds fun. I feel like there's no bars like that. I've never been Unless to you're on something a with a huge, like, yeah, big glass wind, uh, glass ceiling or anything that can get taken away. That's sweet. The Melody Lounge was in the basement and the caricature bar was reserved for celebrities. The decoration did not set fire when they came into contact with matches and cigarettes. So someone had tried to prevent such a thing. Especially because remember, this was a time where you could smoke inside. Yeah, true. Ye old, I feel like good old days. Everything was just so much more flammable back then, too. True. Learn about film, just catching up, catching yeah. a whole building up. The decorative cloths were covered in ammonium sulfate to prevent them from catching fire, but there's no evidence that this was ever maintained. Because of the wartime rationing, the air conditioners were powered with flammable methyl chloride because Freon was in low supply. At the Coconut Grove, and by the way, Coconut is spelled with an A, Cocao, the busboys, you know, they were underpaid teenagers, and the waiters doubled as bouncers. The owner locked exits and hid others, even going so far as to brick up an emergency exit to prevent customers from leaving without paying. On the night of the fire, Wolanski was recovering from a heart attack at Mass General Hospital, ironically, where a bunch of people who were victims of this fire would be taken that same evening. On November 28th, 1942, the Holy Cross football team beat Boston College at Fenway Park 
So BC canceled their after party at the Coconut Grove that evening. Mayor of Boston, Maurice Tobin, was supposed to be in attendance because he went to BC and was a fan. In came the Holy Cross fans in their place. If you've never been to Boston, it is so cold in December. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a a tough night. When you walk outside on the street, you'll probably slip, fall, and bust your bum. Drag queen Arthur Blake was headlining the night, and more than a 1,000 people were inside the venue, which was only allowed to hold a maximum of 460 people. Red flag. The room is full, and then everyone's on top of each other. Yeah. Plus, it's underground part of it. Plus, there are no exits. (laughs) Yes. Plus, there are no exits at all. The fire ended up breaking out at around 10, 15 p.m. in the Melody Lounge. Goody Goodell was on the revolving stage playing piano and singing. The coconut sconces had low-powered light bulbs in them, and a young man unscrewed one of the bulbs so that he could kiss his date in the dark. Stanley... Tomasuski was a teenage busboy, and he was told to re-screw the light bulb back in. He got on a chair, but he couldn't see the socket itself, so he ended up lighting a match, tightening the light, and then putting out the match immediately. Right after this, witnesses saw flames break out. The official report cleared Stanley of blame, and the origin of the fire is officially unknown. One witness stated that he was initially unconcerned about the fire because as a regular, he had seen the palm tree decorations catch fire many times before, but it was always quickly snuffed out. Okay, I know I go to bars that have rats. I've seen Mm. them and I've actively continued to go. We've been there together. Yeah. I've never been to a bar that has caught fire and then continued to go there. I've never been to a bar that's caught fire. Actually, that's a lie. I was at a bar. A bunch of teenagers pulled the fire alarm. Oh, okay. But was there a fire? Unclear. Okay. Then, yeah. I've Maybe never... they were just skipping their bill. Yeah, I've, I've never been in a place where there's a fire that happened. And if there was, I don't think I'd go back. No. First, waiters attempted to put out the fire, and it spread throughout the palm tree decorations. Finally, they attempted to pull down the decorations, which brought down a plywood panel that allowed the space in the false ceiling to catch. People began to be showered with sparks and burning fabric. People began running up the only exit from the basement, the narrow stairway they came through, the flames chasing them. At the top of the stairs, the flames burst through into the main lounge. There was emergency exit at the top of the stairs, but it had been double bolted shut. The flames traveled faster than people could move, and some died still in their seats, drinks in hand. Within five minutes, the flames and smoke had filled the entire club. Employees ended up faring a lot better in survival due to their familiarity with the winding complex. So remember, it's a warehouse that we've made into restaurants and bars and then added a bunch of stuff to. Someone on the staff was able to open a double door opposite the entryway to the main dining room, and this would become the only path of escape from the public areas. Only one of the exits was functioning. The rest were either false or in non-public areas. Many people headed for the main entrance, which was a single revolving door. Bodies piled up on both sides of the door until it was jammed and it broke. The fire went toward the cold night air and killed whoever was left alive at the bottom of the pile. By now, the lights are totally out. It is now illegal to have only one revolving door as a main entrance, which is why you see so many revolving doors next to regular doors. 
Now revolving doors also have to have a mechanism which allows the doors to fold in on themselves in the event of an emergency. Side doors have been bolted up to prevent people from leaving without paying, like I'd mentioned. And five people ended up surviving by hiding in a walk-in refrigerator and three more by hiding in an ice box. And ice boxes were not big. Yeah, that's like contortion work there. So to fit three people... Jeez. In the one ice box. Other escape doors actually opened inward and could not be opened against the crush of people trying to escape. Fire officials said that more than 300 people would have lived if the doors had swung outward. By now, the rest of downtown Boston had taken notice of the flames. As time passed, the temperature plummeted. Water on the street froze outside and hoses began clinging to the ground. Newspaper trucks fly in when ambulances end up running out. Firefighters said that the shock of breathing in the hot air from the fire, then the cold air from the street led people to just drop like stones. The fire in the Broadway lounge was the worst. It took a few minutes for the fire to reach there, but when it did, the gas and the hot temperatures turned people to cinders. Firefighters kept attempting to enter the building, but they were continuously driven back by the heat. They eventually entered through the space where the revolving door had been, over a six-foot stack of people. An officer on the scene recalled that as rescuers lifted bodies out of the club, arms and legs came off in their hands. Everyone living or dead was loaded into an ambulance, and at the hospital, they determined who would receive treatment and who would go to the morgue. This was one of the first times, actually, they used triaging. Mobs descended on the club looking for their family and friends, with city officials creating a human chain to allow the firefighters to continue their work. Grossly, bodies of victims were looted for their valuables as they lay dead or dying in the street. The fire started and ended in about 30 minutes, and over the next year, it would claim the lives of 492 people in total, making it the second worst venue fire in American history. The burned-out shell of what remained was finally demolished three years later in September 1945. At least, you know, during a time of war austerity, we still put the resources toward tearing down such a, you know, horrible relic. Because imagine living in the neighborhood and every day you have to walk past that and be reminded. Yeah. That's right by Emerson. The Boston Fire Department had inspected the building 10 days before the fire and had declared it safe. Apparently the club had been operating with no occupancy permits, no food permits, and no liquor licenses for many years. 16-year-olds like Stanley were not legally authorized to work there, The newly opened Broadway Lounge had been constructed without building permits by unlicensed contractors. Look at all the stuff you used to be able to get away with in the city of Boston. The Boston Herald ran a cover story the next day reading, Busboy Fixing Light with Match Set Fire. For the next few months, Stanley had to live in a hotel under guard for his safety. Even though Stanley was cleared of all charges, he lived the rest of his life as a pariah. He went on to attend Boston College and work in the federal government. In his later years, he spent time visiting the graves of those who had died and prayed for them every day. He told the press later, I've suffered enough, spit on, called every name in the book, and threatened. Phone calls in the middle of the night. It hasn't been easy. I don't have a sense of guilt because it wasn't my fault. If I felt guilt, I wouldn't be talking to you. My name would not be on the doorbell and in the telephone book. I never backed away. The report reveals how many corners Barney Wolanski had cut in the name of greed. On New Year's Eve, 1942, a Suffolk County grand jury handed down 10 indictments ranging from neglect of duty to manslaughter. It was at this point that they cleared Stanley of blame. 
Polanski was found guilty on 19 counts of manslaughter and sentenced to between 12 and 15 years in prison. Three years into his sentence, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and Maurice Tobin, now governor of Massachusetts, pardoned his friend. He was defiant till the end, saying, If you were wrongfully convicted, framed, you'd feel you had a perfect right to be free. I only wish I had been there at the fire and died with those others. Wolanski died nine weeks later after he was released from prison. The year after the fire, Mass and other states enacted laws which banned flammable decorations, inward swinging doors, and required that exit signs be visible at all times. They also barred emergency exits from being chained or bolted shut in such a way that would prevent escape during emergencies. Violation of these laws carries heavy fines or even complete business shutdown. But yeah, it's horrible that it takes... um, like terrible things it, happening for any regulations. Change. Yeah. You 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 look at street corners that didn't used to have stop signs. You, you look at <laughs> and you and you have to think to yourself, yeah, something awful must have happened here that now we're needing to be safe. Now we have to have these things in place. This also really makes me think of the shirtwaist fire in New York. Mm-hmm. That's and another how one. After we that, do. it really changed um you know, labor regulations and working yeah. conditions. But, you know, you have to see a bunch of people die in the street for that. It's really sad. So let's talk about the victims. I said that I wanted to be more thoughtful. So here I am attempting such a thing. Among the dead were actor Buck Jones found under his table at the caricature bar. He ended up dying of his injuries two days later. He had been there with his agent, Scott R. Dunlap, who survived the fire. He slowed down his career immensely afterward. A 15-year-old girl, Eleanor Chimpa, died that evening after sitting next to Buck Jones. Her older brother, who was on leave from the war, had taken her that night, and she ended up being the youngest casualty in the fire. Musical director Bernie Faziolo also died in the fire, but several members of his band were able to escape through a door in the service area. Albert, the guy who we said was one of the original founders of the club, was able to escape out a basement window and helped others get to safety in that same way. The bassist that night was Jack Lesber, and he survived and went on to play with Louis Armstrong, Sarah Vaughn, and Leonard Bernstein. His survival was memorialized in Charles Mingus's autobiography, although the section didn't end up being published. Chuck D went on to read the passage in the Mingus tribute album, Weird Nightmare. Clifford Johnson went back inside four times to look for his date, not knowing that she had escaped safely. This led to third-degree burns over 55% of his body, making him the most severely burned person to end up surviving. Over the next 21 months, he had hundreds of surgeries. Upon release, he ended up marrying his nurse and returned to Missouri. And in the cruelest twist of fate, in 1956, he burned to death in a car accident. Oh my God. Newlywed couple John and Claudia O'Neill, who had married earlier that night, died in the fire. They were found in the dining room next to their best man and maid of honor. I'm surprised that all of Bay Village isn't haunted. Yeah, that's a lot of death. Harry, James, John, and Wilfred Fitzgerald, four brothers, all died in the fire alongside their dates. Their mother had been a widow, and she lost her entire remaining family that night. These are just some of the stories of those who died or survived that November night at the Coconut Grove. There were also a bunch of medical breakthroughs made from this fire. 
12 hospitals in the Boston area received victims with MGH and Boston City Hospital taking on the lion's share of patients. Estimates say that Boston City Hospital received one patient every 11 seconds, the greatest influx of civilian patients to any civilian hospital ever. Because of emergency preparations made across the East Coast for World War II, the hospitals were well prepared in case of such an attack. There was no standard triage system for mass casualty events yet, so many people died on their way or at the hospital. By the next morning, only 132 patients out of the 300 people who had been transferred to Boston City Hospital were still alive, and only 39 were alive at MGH. All in all, only 130 patients who made it to the hospital ended up surviving. So we said that there were over 1,000 people there that night. I guess, you know, three people were able to get out, or 300 people were able to get out um, unmaimed or something. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good. Uh, I don't know about that ratio. <laughs> the ratio is really bad, but use of MGH's blood bank, which they had established in April of that same year, more blood was used for the Coconut Grove fire than for Pearl Harbor. The last survivor was discharged in April 1943. None of the hospitals who received patients charged anyone, and the Red Cross ended up providing financial support as well. Doctors Charles Lund and Newton Browder from Boston City Hospital used this experience to write Estimation of the Areas of Burns, which is the most widely cited paper in modern burn care. Surgeon Oliver Cope and subsequently Dr. Bradford Cannon started treating burn victims with Vaseline-covered gauze and boric acid, which led to the phasing out of the tanning process, which you can look up. It's really gross. None of the initial 39 survivors at MGH died of their burns. There are a lot of other medical breakthroughs that we could go into, but they just go straight over my head. There, I don't think that this uh, incident is memorialized in the way that it should be. I think that there should be a, a bigger memorial to it. Yeah. Although nothing remains of the original club and the streets have been totally redesigned, there is still a plaque that uh, the victims embedded in the sidewalk, which was placed there in 1993. Jock's Cabaret is also in Bay Village. Oldest drag bar in the fucking country. Okay. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Center a queer culture. But not a place that you want to be necessarily if you're queer, Boston. So Jacques Cabaret, like I was saying, is also in Bay Village. And although it is a few blocks from the site of the Coconut Grove, it is said to be haunted by the victims. A film distribution garage was used as a temporary morgue on the night of the fire with bodies laid out in rows and Jack's cabaret lives in that very garage today. I didn't put this in our script, but someone, one of the bartenders there said that he turned off the lights. And when he turned off the lights, he saw the rows and rows of bodies. And then when he flipped them back on, they were all gone. Oh God. Stop giving me chills. Al. stop it. I know. I'm like, Oh my God. Oh, I live alone. Crazy. I live alone. And now I'm scared. Yeah. Fun fact. In the city of Boston, you are not allowed to name anything Coconut Grove in perpetuity. Understandable. No boutique, no nope. restaurant, nope. no bar, no club, no, no library, no. no street, no kids. Nope. Not a thing. And also there were a bunch of underground, other underground 
establishments and venues in Boston that all had to close in the wake of this, which leads me to the Steinway Piano Theater. Mm -hmm. There was a huge opera house right under Steinway Piano, right next to Piano Row, my former beloved home on Boylston Street. And apparently they've let the two entryways to it disintegrate so badly that you just can't get there. And I wonder if like it's ever just going to like collapse in on itself and we're going to lose all of Boylston Street because it's hollow. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to another episode of Fatal Fortunes. This one was a downer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't get better. More of this to come every Tuesday. But remember, on Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. See you next time.